Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Avengers, Age of Ultron. Is garbage, folks. Is it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't know the difference, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Look at that. That is a werewolf. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Den of Geek Presents Marvel Standom. I'm Mike Cicchini. I am the editor-in-chief of denofgeek.com and Den of Geek Magazine and pretty much, I don't know, everything else that has to do with Den of Geek these days. But, you know, who listens to me? Uh, I'm lucky that you folks are even tuning in. But with me this week, as usual, for all time and always, we've got Den of Geek News and Features Editor Kirsten Howard. We have Den of Geek TV Editor Alec Bajalin. And welcome our special guest, Mr. Liam O'Donnell, who is the writer of the first Skyline movie, the writer-director of its sequels, and the co-host of the popular Action for Everyone podcast. How are we all doing today, folks? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me. Um, you know, Kirsten wrote, like, one of the nicest things anyone has, so I'm, I'm a simp for life. I'll do anything she wants me uh, to do. And so I'm happy to be here for you guys. I, I love that every week's Marvel standum begins with, I'm Mike Cicchini and I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in radical honesty, folks. What, what can I say? And, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is nothing, you know, if nothing else, it is a uh, two hour and change therapy session. So uh, I think this is going to be a pretty raw episode uh, full of uh, feelings and potentially me crying. You know, what's interesting, <laughs> Alec, I think this is the first time you and I have actually spoken since either of us have seen this movie. So I'm really curious to get into your head today. Um, you teased your thoughts a little bit before we got on the call. And uh, I was like, I think we just have the exact same take on this movie. Like, I don't know. I might just like defer to you every time it's my time to speak. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's awesome. Like it, it's just a great, fun film that's also incredibly dark. Weirdly, sometimes I so like I don't have children myself, and I wonder if like we come across as big babies sometimes when we're talking about these Marvel movies, and we're like, this one was pretty scary. Like this one felt pretty <laughs> intense for kids, and having no frame of reference, I don't know if that's true or not. But this is one of those movies where like I. I feel like this is literally PG-13 because it says Marvel on it and they only say the F word once. Like I'm having a hard time understanding why something like this gets a PG-13. I could jump in there because I'm the guy who took three kids to it yesterday, uh, the youngest being six. And she sat next to me and, and put her sweatshirt over her head at several points during the movie. And then my 10-year-old my daughter at the end was just like, 
I just can't believe they did that to the blank, uh, which is a, another creature. And she just, even when we got home, she was just so fucking bummed about that particular scene where uh, the creature with the robotic arms, I'm trying to be a little less spoilery up front. You can spoil away. This is a spoiler episode. Everyone. Here. Okay. Yeah. She's just like, I'm far- I can't believe they killed the otter. Oh I can't believe they killed the otter. <laughs> like, like, she was like, why, why'd they kill the otter? And I was like, I, I don't know what to say, honey. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you cared. So, but yeah, I, we loved it. Everybody loved it. It was a great time, but there was definitely, I mean, I, I, I guess I wasn't as, as broken up as I think some people were because I'm sitting next to the kids and just feel like, it's okay. It's okay. I, I can't sit there and, uh, and just, you know, ball openly, um, with, with the six-year-old daughter there, I, I'm kind of have to be the, the strong uh, shoulder for her to cry on. See, I have no such constraints. I saw this, like I have no kids and I saw this alone at a press screening in Burbank and I, like, I'm glad that it was not, you know, I'm a New Yorker. Like, usually I see that. Can you stop showing those, Andrew? My God, <laughs> like, you're really killing me, dude. Like, come on. Like, like, I was so glad that I was seeing this in a different city. And I was not surrounded by people who might recognize me because I full on lost it at least twice during this movie. I just have no tolerance whatsoever. A tolerance is the wrong word, but... Like, I don't even want animals to be sad. You know what I mean? Like, I get upset if I think an animal is, like, just, like, a little sad. And and so this movie was full of sad animals and then some. So I'm on your kid's side, Liam. Like, you tell them that I've got their back on this one. It, it was also just, I'd say, um, some of the best VFX that Marvel's done, uh, especially that, like you're talking about, the character work for rocket um and 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 his crew and and there's this whole flashback to you know we see rocket's origin and uh you know there's been much ballyhoo about the marvel uh vfx kind of taking a dip uh post endgame and some of that is is due to the crunch and not enough people being available and also using different um houses and stuff like that so I just felt like this was a real return to form of of that sort of heyday where, you know, Rocket's a very complicated visual effect and you stop thinking about it that way. And he just becomes like a fully three-dimensional character. Like even when they're like doing his chest compressions and there's so much interactive visual effects there that are so difficult to to look seamless. And I was like, wow, you know, the bad guy grabbing his head and like squeezing his brain, like that looked incredible. And those are the things that are like more impressive to me than a planet and all that other stuff, because, uh, you know, I kind of know how that's done, but those, the, the, some of that stuff is, was just uh, next level on this. Uh, and, and it really allows you to get pulled into that character story. And, uh, you know, like they said, it kind of becomes rockets. The whole thing becomes rockets story, which was uh, really cool. I mean, we've talked a lot in previous months about, and there's been so much discourse online too, about, you know, the fact that the MCU's VFX have not really been up to snuff, you know, since Endgame, I thought Infinity War and Endgame both looked fantastic. Like, I think those movies looked as, as, as good as these kinds of movies can look, but they just, they haven't looked great. And this movie looked spectacular. I mean, like, yeah, Rocket is one of the best CG characters I think I've ever seen. I mean, I thought Thanos was was fantastic, you know? Like, that was a brilliant performance brought to life and enhanced by this technology. Rocket might even be, like, a, another step up this time around. And I, I never 
I kind of wish that they were putting this much effort into everything they were putting out these days, because I think, you know, the franchise still deserves it. The effects are very good in this one. Um, like we said, Rocket looks amazing. I think we have to give uh, some due to Bradley Cooper, though, whose vocal performance in, in these movies just absolutely sells it 100%. He's so good. And um, I, I think, you know, you, you, I can't imagine a different voice coming out. And I don't think that's Bradley Cooper when I'm watching Rocket. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that's a real raccoon because I'm easily... Uh, fooled by lights and shiny colors. B. Coops. B. Coops is a special sauce. Uh, I agree. He's kind of like, uh, there's a weird rivalry I have on our show with uh, Bradley Cooper versus Ryan Reynolds. And because, you know, he was supposed to be Green Lantern and Ryan mm. Reynolds got it. And I was like, there's a better timeline where Bradley Cooper was Green Lantern and that whole thing worked. Um, but yeah, I just love how earnest he is as Rocket too. Like there's no, there's no wink. There's no meta jokey anything he and I, and I went back after this movie I, I put on guardians one last night as i was winding down and i was like it, it's there from the beginning like they even talk about they set up everything in this movie in the first act um and and so yeah he definitely i, I agree he's he's sort of this uh i don't know if the movies work they, they definitely don't work the same way without him for us it's like it, it's a it's an amazing voice performance his scream uh oh. lila dies that's like the most raw audio ever committed to, to film in a Marvel movie. I can't, I, I, I don't want to be that guy. And, and I think despite the fact that this show is called Marvel Standom, I think we're all usually pretty even handed in our criticisms. And I know as the show goes on, you know, Kirsty and I have been kind of on <laughs> just, surprisingly. I know as the show goes on, Kirsty's going to badmouth this movie and I'm going to have to sit here and shut up and take no. it. <laughs> No, it's just like, you know, because historically, Kirsty and I were always like, like very, very aligned on the MCU. And it's really only been with like the latter part of phase four with the movies and TV where like we've sometimes found ourselves not completely at odds. You know, Kirsty enjoyed Thor Love and Thunder more than I did. I enjoyed Multiverse of Madness more than they did. So, you know, I kind of understand how how this is going to go. And also, look, I, I get that. James Gunn as a stylist is not quite for everybody. I don't think he's quite as much of a, you know, dividing line for people as somebody like Zack Snyder might be, but I understand that James Gunn's style can be a little bit grating for some folks. Um, so I'm curious, like, as I am here just offering unequivocal, like <laughs> heaping ridiculous amounts of praise on this movie, I'm just waiting for Kirsty to, puncture my bubble here <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i'm gonna puncture a bubble i thought this movie was basically fine just basically fine yeah i mean it's well made i i thought the effects were good i i think their performances are once again incredible um these actors are perfect in these roles they've just got them down you know and they just they just slide into them so easily um I think we were on a meeting before and um, someone said that, you know, Chris Pratt, you know, that's one charismatic motherfucker. Like you can't, it, it, no matter what you think of him, right? He is, he is great as this character. And it's not a surprise to see Star-Lord will return at the end of this movie. Like he's, he's not going to let go of this character because he's had such an enormous amount of a success with it. 
Um, so I think the performances are great. I think the movie itself is basically good. Um, I think the template for it, which is like the Guardians bouncing around from uh, one thing to another, trying to find X um, interspersed with Rocket's flashbacks. I think it works. Um, it occasionally feels a bit messy as we're jumping back and forth. It just feels narratively just a little bit messy, um, especially with um, Adam Warlock jumping in and out of the story. Um, however, I think that the Adam issue, a lot of it is just that it's been, been so long since he was teased in the second movie. Um, but I think if you watch these movies back to back later, it'll the Adam part of it will work a lot better for people so yeah I, I basically I thought this movie was fine yeah and it, it is true like you said Mike that James Dunn's shtick is not really for me that kind of comedy the arguing about who's dumber I find it a bit grating but um there was there was a lot less of it it felt like in this one and that's because we were concentrating on the seriousness and the darkness of Rocket's backstory so I, I found the the movie much um an easier watch in some respects given how depressing it is um which which of the three is your favorite oh I think the first one actually yeah I've actually come around on the second one a little bit I I never used to like that at all and I re-watched it recently and found it easier i i love the second one i love i love them all but the second one just because of kurt russell it's, it's hard to yeah well. i can't I, I can't resist <laughs> uh kurt, kurt russell as as an evil planet uh dad is just uh it's it's <laughs> like you're putting you know uh you know the big trouble in little china into this thing that already felt like it was kind of uh, referencing it so i don't know that that felt like just like a perfect uh, marriage for me. And then, you know, Michael Rooker, it's like, like one of the best performances of his career in volume two. But yeah, I, I mean, I, you guys know more about this stuff, I think than I do where it's like, I, I can't help but wonder how it would have felt like if this movie had come out sooner when it was supposed to, and um, kind of be the kickoff of phase, whatever the hell we're in, rather than whatever the hell we're in now uh because it kind of like it, it, it it's one of the things that felt like everything was missing and, and and you go back to some of these teases that they do at the end of the movies like oh thor is going to be with the guardians is that going to be fun you mean like oh the five minute montage that they just undo it completely and then we go into this other movie you know like that 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 stuff starts to be annoying in hindsight but i think what what's good like when i put on the first one last night I could see that, like, oh, this is going to work as a trilogy, and I'm I'm kind of excited to go back through it and uh, and watch two, and then and then three again when it's when it's out again. Because, yeah, it it definitely feels like you've got one filmmaker's voice throughout all of this mess, even though there's a big chunk of, you know, in, Infinity War and Endgame in, in there as well. It does it does feel like he's one of the only guys who's able to cut through this huge marvel machinery to make something unique in his own this movie provides good ammunition in um my ongoing struggle to decanonize love and thunder <laughs> because like it really the, like the guardians in love and thunder are absolutely not the guardians in this movie or any other guardians movie um and it also does kind of like the the kid thing better at the end with like for some reason 
I don't know. At virtually every episode, Marvel Stand episode, just turns into me complaining about Love and Thunder. But like this movie kind of hammers home how like easy it should have been to like have an audience invested in the stakes of saving a bunch of children. Um, and that's like really worthwhile, interesting stakes at the end of this. I think uh, straight up comedy movies are deceptively hard to make. They might look easy, especially when there's a lot of improving. But it feels to me like that's tricky. And I think you, you, you notice that a lot of people, a lot of the directors who make successful horror comedies um, tend to end up getting handed some big projects because those are two tricky things to balance. And you've got James Gunn here who made Slither, which was you know, really well handled horror comedy. Uh, Taika Waititi also come from um, what we uh, what we do in the shadows, and it, it in a lot of ways it feels like those two guys um, have a similar outlook on stuff. Um, so, it, it, but it is a tale of two movies, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I enjoyed Thor: Love and Thunder. I'm not as hard on it as you guys. Um, I, I kind of liked it the first time, and I think we talked about it on our show, uh, Kirsten. I I, yeah. I enjoyed it, and then the second time when my my wife was watching it on Disney Plus, it, I was like unraveling in front of my eyes <laughs> as like a much worse experience. My basic theory is, it's just you know like to be that that comedy director, like you can do the jokes on top of a story with really good bones, like Ragnarok. Ragnarok has these great bones of a story. So the jokes are kind of skimming along the surface where you have this great propulsive story always moving forward. But when you're trying to make the jokes at the same time as the plot, it felt like maybe it it just was more aimless. It didn't really have, it didn't have that strong of a narrative that the, the, so that the jokes felt like it was always kind of like different uh, energies and it wasn't moving forward. And, you know, I think it's always going to be difficult to match the, uh, the the cancer subplot in with the God Killer thing. Like it was, it was, it was a tall task. It wasn't like he, it was definitely not a lack of ambition. But um, yeah, it's def, it's it's not not up there with Ragnarok for me, which I think is one of the best of the MCU. I think that's fair, Liam, and I, I agree to an extent. Honestly, for me, Love and Thunder is like the Gremlins too, where. It's not this sort of perfect movie that the first one was, but there's just enough uh, unhinged insanity in it to keep me interested and amused until the credits roll. Although I am one of those rare folks who does prefer Gremlins 2 to the original. Like, uh, yeah, I'm a weirdo. I love Gremlins Uh, 2 as well. Um, It's, I mean, it's, there's a, there's like a Gremlins orgy in Trump Plaza. How could you not love that movie? Uh, (laughs) I would say to get into the, what you were saying about volume three, not being, you know, perfect. And there is a like maybe 15 minute sequence towards the end of the second act into the third act where I did feel what you were saying, a bit of confusion because there's so many, they're, they're, they're jumping in between different spaceships and there's so many characters and I didn't really know what everybody wanted at the time. Like I, I, I lost the plot for a little bit until uh, no sleep till Brooklyn kind of brings everything back together and you're like, fuck yeah, let's go. So uh, I, I get what you're saying. There, there is definitely, it's definitely not uh, without its, uh, its messiness, but I would say when from like a visual style, like filmmaking standpoint, I think he continues to get better. You know, like the first movie is very like handsomely made. It's it's uh it's all 
kind of well and good meat and potatoes craft. Uh, and then the second one, it was like, okay, he's he seems to be progressing with his visual storytelling. Um, I didn't love Suicide Squad because they did so many of these emotional beats that then got undercut by jokes and they kind of like killed my favorite characters, like right when I was like falling in love with them and stuff. So I didn't I didn't connect with that. I felt like it was all sort of a little offbeat because he was trying to do something so different. But Peacemaker worked for me. Uh, I thought that was a great time. This feels like it's it's kind of you know, from a craft standpoint, it's, it's, it's his best looking movie. I feel like he's gotten really good at designing sets to have digital effects integrated into them. There's a lot of great, like huge backlot for the nowhere set. Um, there's, there's different design and aesthetic choices that he's using than most everybody else in sci-fi. He's doing a lot of weird organic tech and, uh, and kind of goofy looking stuff that he's not afraid to go full goofy and, and everyone else is just kind of like still stuck in the like Star Wars aliens got to look cool, uh, you know, sci-fi aesthetic choices, which I'm guilty of as well. But I, I kind of liked that he wasn't afraid to, you know, have guys in these like meat suits floating around. <laughs> it was a little bit more, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at times. Folks, we're getting actual filmmakers perspective on marvel standing <laughs> this week this is uh this is this is a new one for us so like somebody that actually knows what they're talking about has joined us this is incredible this is a big step forward thank you so much uh <laughs> really classing the joint up today should should we just keep should we just keep freewheeling here or is there something yeah, that you want to hit like right now um because i just want to go back to your point about liam i just want to clarify one thing did you say that Guardians 2 is your favorite of the trilogy? I don't know. I mean, I'm sitting with this one. The more I think about it, the more I like it. Um, but I would just say Guardians 2 is is way up there, if not my favorite. And there's there's a vibe with the soundtrack on 2 that it, it's probably my favorite of the soundtrack. There's just, they just, and, and where it fits in the MCU, it was like really the heyday, you know? It was really where... Everything was working on all cylinders. I don't think we knew that like Chris Pratt was in like, like super religious dude and all this stuff. Like it was all just, it was all, it was all, we we're on a gravy train with biscuit wheels. <laughs> we, we were enjoying everything. Alec, your favorite of the trilogy? The man said gravy train with biscuit wheels. That's, that's uh, the Kingpin. Kingpin. You know? <clears throat> I just can't believe I have to continue on after that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I'll probably say one. Um, two is a fine choice. I just kind of got unlucky with my personal two viewing experience. I, for some reason, didn't see it in theaters. Um, so I just watched it like on my like really small TV in my apartment during the daytime at one point. So like, I didn't really get the feel for the epic scale. Um, but I remember to, I've, I've talked to, I remember talking to a friend who said that volume two was their favorite Marvel movie ever. And maybe like one of the favorite superhero movies ever. They said because they're a child of adoption, and like the the Yondu story hit them so hard, they just wept through it. And like I just can't believe just like how perfect they, they nailed this concept of he may have been your father, but you ain't your daddy, uh, or whatever the line was. I think it's that. I think it was. So like, yeah. I, I, I I'm not a stepdad. I'm the dad that stepped yeah, up. Exactly. I think yeah. Yeah, uh, Rooker looks directly in the camera and says that exact line. I'm not the stepdad, I'm the dad who stepped up. Um, so I have a tremendous amount of respect for two. And I think like 
Given some time, I feel like three might be a perfectly valid choice. I can't say that now. Like, I need to give it some time and distance. Uh, but from where I stand now, I think one is just too hard to top. Um, it's so infectious and energetic uh, and just novel. I love number one. Percy, what about you? Did you say the first one was still your fave? I think so, yes. It came along uh, at a time in my life. Um, I had postnatal depression. I'm just about to overshare guys to strap in uh, I had postnatal depression after I had my second uh, daughter and basically these movies were getting me through uh, it was something that I was working with in therapy um, that, so they give you something you set goals of things to look forward to so that you can get through every day <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't mean to bring the tone down um, and so with these movies I was like well I can't you know I can't stop. I can't grind to a halt. I can't fall down and and lose myself right now because Guardians of the Galaxy is coming out. So it's weird because I pinned all my things and then it would be the next Marvel movie that came out. And so that's as I as I got out of um, this very like hardcore depressive phase, I was really looking forward to like the next Marvel movie. And and that's what got me through. And Guardians was the first one of those, I believe, that um, this first sort of goal that I'd set for myself, like, oh, I'll see Guardians of the Galaxy and, and then I'll see what's up. Um, so it has a kind of more of a special place in my heart um, than a lot of the other movies at that point in the MCU, for sure. And in my life, I just I associate like getting through a very dark time with that movie, even though it's perhaps not one of my favorites in, in the franchise. Um, so I think I'm more connected to it on a um, an emotional level than the other two. I think it's hard to top the first one, if nothing else, just for the novelty factor of it. Right. Like it was just such a burst of energy and color and sound that we never expected from anything really at, at the time, right? And um, and I think history will continue to be kind to two, as as Liam and Alec have pointed out. I think that got a little bit of a bad rap at the time. I didn't love it the first time I watched it, and then I realized that it's like I feel like functionally there is no actual difference in quality in these three movies. Like they all have their little issues here and there you know my like guardians 3 i think is the i mean it's the one that hit me the hardest emotionally but it's also the toughest watch it's like the one that i don't know how much of a hurry i'm going to be in to revisit it just because of how hard it hit me um i think it is a better final act than the first one you know like i think so i don't know i mean these are just these are just three really goddamn good sci-fi movies and and i i i'm amazed that we got them and you know now james gunn is off to you know hopefully greener pastures with dc but who knows what's going to happen with with superhero movies in general over the next few years it's really a wild time to be alive and a fan of this stuff you could definitely make the argument that they're three of a piece in that the, the pros and cons like they're all and i think that's why they're the best Marvel trilogy, uh, because one, it's one filmmaker, and and, and two, it's like they, they just all fit together and so well and kind of complement each other. I will say, part one, I think one of the problems with the rewatch is that they just fucking destroy Xandar off screen in the other movies. So the whole third act is like we got to save all these beautiful people on Singapore planet. 
and then they all just died it, it, it before like before a movie ever happened so that kind of bums me out when i rewatch that one <laughs> not gun's fault obviously but it, it, it's a bit of a bummer this is probably the only real issue i have with the franchise as a franchise and this is a late stage fandom issue you know um you know, look, there there is some evidence to say right now that the MCU is like kind of collapsing under its own weight, the way that many late stage fandoms do, the way comic books have for decades, right? I feel like this franchise would have been better served if they never had to be involved in Infinity War and Endgame. I heard people grousing, even coming out of this press screening last week wait, you know, why is Mantis, Mantis is his sister, you know, like, and wait, wasn't Thor, you know what I mean? Like there were, there were issues here where people, you know, once people feel that they have to do homework to follow something, I think, I think that's like the kiss of death. And I wouldn't be surprised, like if Gunn really had his, had his druthers, if this would have just been completely self-contained. I know folks were confused about even the Gamora issue in this, because that's the most confusing Endgame, part. It's the most confusing yeah. part. I've watched all the movies multiple times and I'm still like, wait, was, was that the one from the other timeline or did she come back from the snap? Because I felt like their explanation right? in this was muddled. And like, not for nothing, folks, Endgame was a long time ago at this point. And like, it's an even longer, it's like a lifetime ago when you consider everything we've been through the last three years as a society. So expecting people to like connect the dots when the world has been traumatized, you know, like, like when, when the opening scenes of Endgame became a documentary, like that was kind of not, not what, not conducive to this kind of thing. But Kirsty has a really succinct explainer for any folks who have not, you know, who maybe have forgotten, uh, you know, what is up with Gamora and why her and Peter were not vibing the way they used to? Uh, Kirsty, do you want to do you want to fill everybody in real quick? Mike, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't realize I was reading that live. I thought that I, it was something I was going to record after the show. But oh, very well. I, well, then we because, can still do no, that. No, no, because I'm a consummate professional. I'm just going to absolutely segue into that with no problem whatsoever. Gamora was first introduced as a deadly assassin working for the villainous Thanos, who had adopted her as his daughter after killing half her race. But she eventually saw the error of her ways and joined up with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Gamora later took custody of her adopted sister Nebula, who had been tortured by Thanos. But when Thanos was planning to use the Infinity Stones to wipe out half the galaxy, he kidnapped the sisters and took Gamora to a remote planet called Vormir where he knew he could come into possession of the Soul Stone. For Thanos to get the Soul Stone, he had to sacrifice someone he loved. He apparently did love his daughter, as when he threw her off a cliff, he got the Soul Stone in exchange. It was a sacrifice that cannot be undone in the future, according to MCU canon. Here comes the tricky part, as the Gamora that we see in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is not the Gamora we got to know in the first two films. That's because during the events of Endgame, a younger version of Thanos, young Thanos, discovered that the Avengers had figured out how to time travel. He knew that they had acquired the Affinity Stones and were about to bring 
back half of the existence that Thanos had eradicated at the end of Infinity War. Um, this alternate timeline version of Thanos, again, a young Thanos, uh, was accompanied by more loyal versions of his daughters, Gamora and Nebula. However, present day Nebula was able to convince past Gamora that she would be killed if she stayed with Thanos. So past Gamora helped the Avengers defeat Thanos. Past Gamora is now living in the present without anyone else from her timeline. Uh, she doesn't know the Guardians of the Galaxy aside from Nebula, and she's only had brief interactions with Peter Quill, which is why this version of Gamora doesn't feel like the same attraction to him that the old one did. And she kicked him in the junk. In uh... <laughs> <laughs> So now that we have completely trampled Kirsty's run of show, <laughs> I'm trying to get us back on track, but we haven't really talked about this as the end of, you know, really the end of the journey for so many of these characters. And closure is something that the MCU does not necessarily, you know, do well historically, you know, outside of Endgame, which I, I think Endgame is a perfect movie. Like, I, like Endgame, you know, if, if the MCU had decided to call it a day after Endgame, I would have totally understood um, but this, this tries to do it for, for a lot of things. And other than that, you know, that, that one title card at the very, very end of the final post credit scene with, you know, you know, Star-Lord, you know, legendary Star-Lord will return. If that wasn't the case, if Star-Lord's story ended with him embracing his grandfather, I mean, that would, that would be enough, but how does everybody feel about everything else here? I think I'm kind of pleasantly surprised that they're all alive. And that honestly feels like the smart storytelling decision here. Uh, and whereas, you know, during our Quantum Mania episode, I actually complained that they weren't blood more bloodthirsty and didn't kill anybody off. Um, because part of what Marvel seems to be trying to do is introduce the next generation of things. Uh, but what this movie proves is that you can do that and then also just kind of give your give your guys a satisfying send off anyway i'm glad they tried to like give everybody a reason to get off of this guardians train and go live their lives whether it made sense or not uh and it really does kind of give like this allergic um bittersweet sense to the end of this movie and the end of this franchise and for marvel in general as mike pointed out Liam, do you have a favorite ending for anybody here? Or do you feel like these are all appropriate endings for each of these characters? Do you think they ended up in, especially as somebody, I haven't rewatched one in ages. So especially as somebody who just rewatched the first one, how do you feel about how it ties up the threads for the core team? Yeah, I mean, Star-Lord, uh, that definitely works when you go back and watch the first one. It's right where it begins. You know, he, he comes full circle. Um, which I, for whatever reason, was kind of the more emotional scene for me when he when he gets reunited with his grandfather. Like you said, and they've been pretty upfront about it in the press with like Dave Batista saying this was his last go. Uh, I, I we have a little saying on Action for Everyone about like directors kind of hooking their cast up, and I think James Gunn does that really well. Like everybody gets their kind of big scene, their moment where the characters really shine. And uh, I, we did, haven't really talked about Batista, but I thought he was wonderful in this film. He's very funny, but then they do give him the moment to show that like he's this tender presence 
And I know people complained about some of the interactions between Mantis and Drax in volume two, because he was kind of like begging her and they had, it was, there, there was some, some weird stuff. Um, I, I understood both sides of it, like, cause it, it was still pretty funny, but there was some, some like this undercurrent of meanness that uh, I could set, tell made some people uncomfortable. They, he definitely took the note this time. I didn't feel like there was that same uh, weird stuff between them. It, it, even though they're all still, they, there's still an underlying tension and they're always, you know, fucking with each other. Um, there wasn't that same weird thing of uh, between, between Drax and Mantis. They, they kind of, felt more on tone for what that type of story should be. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I think it's, some of it has to do with the actors. Like, I don't think uh, Tom, I can't pronounce her last name, but the actress that plays uh, Mantis, I don't think she's coming back. And so I don't think, I don't think Batista wants to come back. So it's like, okay, let them go on their own things. And this is going to be the new guardians is uh, the team that they presented. And Star-Lord's probably going to end up in the next Avengers because they don't really have any movie stars left. So that's probably my theory. Batista is so good in these movies, man. Really underrated. He's a great actor, I think. Um, I think one of my favorite moments, if not my favorite moment in this third one, was between um, Dave and Pom. Um, And it was the moment where he said, you think I'm stupid? And she said, yes. And there's a pause. And then she just leans over and goes, forget. Like, it's just some, I don't know. It was just so, it was touching on a level that I can't really explain. Like it, it was a bit sad and it felt a bit cruel as well. And, but honest. And then she just made him forget it happened. And I, I, I don't know. There's some, there's little standout moments in, in this one that feel really raw. And um, so it, I, I definitely felt there were more of those here than in the previous movies. And I like that. I think having them be essentially the main characters of that holiday special kind of helped in that regard. Yes. Made me, it helped me understand them a bit better. Um, and the, the writing and the dialogue in this movie, I feel like is it's been a while since I've seen one or two, but it feels like the, the dialogue leveled up a bit. Like yeah. I found myself... Um, in the theater just occasionally jot, uh, jotting down stuff that struck me and one of them was mantis defending Drax to nebula because i i felt like nebula at that point like this guy is a liability <laughs> lucky i understand that we like that he's stupid but he's like he's really stupid guys like this might be a problem when you're trying to accomplish these complicated missions um and uh mantis tells nebula at least this is what i wrote down he makes us laugh and he loves us. He has sadness, but he's the only one of us who doesn't hate himself. And like, okay, he could be on the team. I, I, <laughs> I relinquish. <laughs> like, well said, Mantis, once again, very empathetic. There's always like a misanthropic streak in, in these movies. And, you know, like Rocket is really an asshole in part two, uh, to the point that it's like, this is why you don't have any friends. And then Gamora kind of takes on that role in volume three, the, the new Gamora, which is one of, I'd say one of the, a little bit of the rewatch like cons for me is that she is like a tough hang for a good amount of the movie. Um, and that I wonder how that, what that part of it is, is going to be for rewatching. But I will say, uh, you know, Zoe Zaldana is, is always great in these movies, kind of amazing that she's been, you know, that this, 
huge sci-fi icon now for like 20 years across Avatar and Star Trek in these movies and kind of got to complete uh, the role, even though it is very different. And I think they do a good job of that. And they do a good job with with Peter's arc that it's not just like, well, you're just going to fall in love with this other version. I, I mean, Mantis, you're talking about the dialogue leveling up. The, the whole analogy about, you know, the lily pad and time to learn to swim, I thought that was great. And it, and it was like the, the more mature direction for Quill to go in. You know, I got to say, like Nebula is a character that I've I've kind of struggled with in these movies, despite the fact I think Karen Gillan's brilliant. I think I think the character is a brilliant visual. Um, I was I was surprised by how moved I was when Nebula kind of like cuts loose at the very, very end and and, you know, embraces humanity and embraces like kind of a celebratory you know, mood. I, 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 it was, it, it truly felt spontaneous watching it. Um, and, you know, not to belabor the point about Chris Pratt's performance either. And that, and that final post-credit scene with his grandfather, but you folks ever have dreams about folks who have, who have gone, who have died, like, and like every now and then you have a dream about them and you wake up and you like, you really, really feel like, like you just saw them, you know what I mean? Like I've had these a couple of times about like, like, like an aunt I was very close with and, and my grandmother and even like my dog. And, you know, I lost my dad in 2021 and, you know, like every now and then it doesn't happen often, but you have a dream and it's not just a dream where they're around, but it's a dream where you full on feel like you just had a minute with them. Right. I feel like that scene with Peter and his grandfather captured that. And that like, like, you know, as if I didn't weep enough, like over the goddamn raccoons, like then this has to come along and, and just like smack me in the face one more time before we leave the theater so that people could actually see me still, you know, all steamed up like that. So I, you know, Again, closure, not really the strong point of these movies. I think I think they really did the best they could. And there was some really raw honesty there along with it. I can't believe we've come this far and we haven't talked about two crucial elements of this. And I know we're already running long, but the high evolutionary is like the best Marvel villain in I don't know how long, like just the most despicable villain and what a what a fantastic performance as well you talk about liam mentioned that he uh kind of like assists his actors um throughout these movies and i feel like that goes from between film and project to project because there's a lot of uh nepo hires in this one but in a good way i think the the moment that made me laugh the hardest actually comes from i can't remember her name unfortunately but uh James Gunn's wife, who plays the um, so J- Jennifer Holland, is Jennifer it? Holland. Yeah. yeah, she gets shot in the leg <laughs> and screams. I, I, and screams rocket like did I, when, <laughs> when that otter died. It's especially because you know the meta thing of everyone being like, "Oh, great, he hired his wife." He hired, and people were there's a little discourse complaining about it, and she plays like essentially an operator who then gets murked. In her leg and like falls over crying. I was like, that's so funny to me just too. Because so, like all of these heroes are such pin cushions. Like they just get shot constantly and just like shake it off. But then like this one civilian just like takes an errant laser to the leg. It's like, ah! <laughs> and I'd be laughing so hard. Um, 
back to the high evolutionary of it all. Uh, <laughs> that Nepo hire comes from Peacemaker, uh, Chuck Woody, and he is great in this. I'll admit, I actually yes. kind of didn't see the vision with him from Peacemaker because I thought like that show's great, but he didn't necessarily like um, astonish me in it. Um, but he really puts in the work here. He was so fun and so terrible. What a dickhead. Um, just an awful dude. I would like to beat him to death with my bare hands. Yeah, it, it was such a theatrically evil performance and it could just be all a bit too panto, you know, just a bit pantomime. But he's so fucking evil and you just want him to die immediately. Like the first time you see him, you're just like, die, just die. And I, I hate that this movie, and I think we talked about this before privately, but I hate this movie doesn't really kill him. He doesn't really get his due. And I, I feel like, man. Wait, did, isn't he ship. on the ship and the, the ship explodes? Well, yeah, but, so was Adam Warlock on really? the small ship. Like being on a ship that explodes never means death. <laughs> if you didn't see him die, he didn't die in the MCU. True, true. <laughs> when we see what Rocket did to him, that is like the most horrifying moment in MCU history. And never mind the F-bomb, if anything was going to push this over into an R rating, you know, the scene of him without his fake face, that's some real stuff there like that's that's like you know fangoria issue cover circa 1987 <laughs> quality like practical makeup effects right like the rating system is complete bullshit uh, especially the mpaa the first skyline movie like they said oh the third act is too intense like that, that was one of their notes and and that you couldn't show a cg brain being held by a tentacle with no blood so that's why we had to color them like red and blue to, to make them more sci-fi colored to, to get uh, a PG-13. Meanwhile, this guy's got like no eyelids and his face <laughs> is like torn to shreds. And they're like, yep. It's like, you're telling me that money and influence has nothing to do with rating. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, um, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Like Disney can get things passed that uh, other people can't. Considering how much James Gunn gets away with in this movie in terms of the the, the violence, the gore, the the f bomb, the um, all of that, the, the 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 animals being you know murdered and just a nice long shot of their corpses on the floor, you know all that stuff. Is this the first of many projects like this for Marvel? Uh, do you think there will be more of these? Because we've got Deadpool 3 coming up, right? And we know that, or at least we've been told that this is going to be along the lines of the other two Deadpool movies, where there is the violence and the swearing. Is this like a soft launch for Deadpool 3? Or um, do you think that we'll get more projects like this uh, between now and then? I think you're probably right. I mean, I think it is it is a soft launch, but I also think it's it's done having the capital to kind of push all those chips into the middle of the table yeah. on its way out. And, and, and not everyone's yeah. going to be able to do that. Lee brought up Blade in the comments. Like, I'm going to be so disappointed if if they don't try and make Blade a horror movie. I mean, come on, folks. Blade needs to be a horror movie. Uh, like it needs to be it needs to if they're not willing to move beyond a pg-13 for that movie they need to take it right up to the limit the way they did with guardians 3 here otherwise like what are we even doing although uh, there, there's some argument to be made about ratings is that like 
the Suicide Squad is R and Guardians 3 is PG-13, I'd much rather watch Guardians 3 anytime. So it's like there's there's things as long as the movie is great, you know, there's 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 leeway that 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 can be given. So should we uh, get everybody's favorite needle drops on this one? I am also a music dork. You know this. So I, I thought the in the meantime sequence was stunning. I thought that was just as beautiful a three minutes as as you're going to get in a Marvel movie. Seeing it in IMAX, hearing that song, which is just a wonderful one hit wonder classic um, at movie theater volume is it like it just hit right. It just felt cool. Um you know, is it the best in the whole franchise? I don't know, but it was it was really neat. Like I just I had to just have to shout it out. That was the trailer song too, right? Yeah, they did like a, a sad kind of remix of it, but it, it worked great for that first trailer. That was excellent. Yeah, I, I loved in the meantime. Uh I, I mentioned previously I'd say no sleep till Brooklyn's kinda like my favorite part of the movie. I'd say I fucking I love yeah. that he got We Care a Lot by Faith No More in there for you know a planet destroy destroying sequence that was so yeah th- those are the three highs for me um I, I i guess i'd go beastie boys but that man faith no more is great too my favorite song might have been badlands during the credits just because i come yes. from an ancestrally bruce family so like i just have to i'm supposed to like all bruce things uh maybe my favorite needle drop might have been do you realize uh, I had like mm. a flaming lips fray, uh, phase, and it's it was a short one, but like that song um, has like this weird dreamy quality that works well when you see kind of a spaceship floating through uh, outer space. I'm about to be an asshole because I don't actually like the way Gun uses music in his films. I find it takes me out of the movie every time they hit the new song, and it reminds me of how. Um, sometimes I'll wander along, usually just when I'm walking somewhere for a long time, and I'll start to have ideas for like movies that I would like to make or put together or stories that I would like to tell. And I'll I'll add my own little needle drops from whatever I'm listening to on my headphones. And it feels like people like Edgar Wright and James Gunn have just gone that next step and just done it, you know. So it does time kind of take me out of it a little bit. I it just feels a little bit forced sometimes, I guess, because they've been running with the, you know, the music, um, Peter's uh, Walkman and then his Zoom for a while. It just, I don't know. I just, I'm being an asshole. Like, there's absolutely no reason for me to dislike the, the, the whole thing as much as I do, but um, I just find it a little bit grating. I don't know. The first one, it's like it it's not forced at all to me because it's the mother's mixtape. You know, it, it is part it. of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I know they tried with the Zune here. It never felt quite as seamless as it did in, you know, the first one is by far the gold standard for that. And I think it was done well in the second one. Um, here, I was just kind of happy to just hear these things being blasted, you know. Um, but I really I caution people against trying to replicate this you know like other that was what MCU i was gonna say yeah. not just mcu but other movies like the adam project and and like netflix type of movies that that just try to do random 70s music and, and it's never quite as good it always kind of the muzak basic version of this stuff um but yeah and they, i'd say one more song that was kind of surprising me because i never really like 
loved it. But in this context, it, it really worked for me was the Florence and the Machine song. Um, you know, I didn't really like, you know, ever buy one of their albums or it was just a radio hit that was like, oh, that's a nice song. But in the movie, it really kind of took on a, a new dimension, which is, I think, kind of what Gunn's so good at. Like he, he, he I think he does have a great ear uh, and he does kind of recontextualize some pop songs in different ways. And that was the one that was like, oh yeah, th there is a lot to this. And it, it, it kind of led to that closure that we're all talking about at the end of the film. I just want to say I'm glad that you guys will really love the movie and I uh, would just like to apologize for my comments. You've been very gentle with us, Kirsty. I feel uh... like I've been gentle, Mike. It, it could have been so much worse, couldn't it? Kirsty has to live every day through a hell in which everybody in the world pretends that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is good. And they're the only That's one right. who knows the truth. <laughs> That's right. Wait, you, you didn't like that one, but you liked Love and Thunder? Oh my God. I'm so sorry, Liam. I'm, I'm so sorry you're finding out this way. I never wanted it to be like this. I've tried okay. to keep these things from you. I really have. Yeah, no, um, I didn't. I didn't like Doctor Strange too. You know, I really didn't like the Wakanda Forever. Uh, I felt like I was on an island for that one. I didn't it, like that one either. <laughs> so dark in the theater and it just never kind of, came together for me so that that was one that when you'd see people be like a masterpiece and stuff you're just like wow i, I saw a, a totally different movie uh, and i love kugler's other films but that one just didn't didn't work for me i think it's okay people you know you like one you don't like another one that's fine isn't it this is what yeah. the mcu is all about it's something for everyone and um some of them are gonna are gonna irritate the shit out of you and some of them are gonna be touch you in a way that you perhaps didn't think a silly superhero movie with cg creatures was good wait did you like quantum mania more than guardians 3 uh i'll plead the fifth oh, holy wow. shit <laughs> wow no comment no comment uh no pictures no questions i literally wanted to go to sleep in quantum mania and i was seeing it at 3 p.m I, I, I was very dreary. And so I, I'll give another filmmaker reason why I I think like Quantum Mania, I think the director is is very talented. I like the first two Ant-Mans, and that's like why he was hired, right? He's kind of a screwball comedy actor, or sorry, director who works with actors and, and does this lighthearted comedy. And then they're like, hey man, go make a Star Wars. And it's just it doesn't, it it's outside of his skill set. It was kind of one of these things that I um oftentimes my podcast is just me complaining about my career and uh it's often like oh if i if i knew that i wanted to make like uh you know like like big budget sci-fi movies i should have made it a sundance movie instead of a low budget sci-fi movie like making a low budget sci-fi movie is the worst thing you can do if you'd like to make big big budget uh sci-fi movies um and so that's where it's like gun actually did make low budget sci-fi movies and he does care about this stuff He's obsessive about it. He's a like he's a Fangoria head. He's a he's a he's a trauma head. And so like I love seeing all of that low budget filmmaking like prowess and even even like the counter earth makeup stuff is kind of cheesy in some ways. Like it's not not everything is the cutting edge visual effect. It's like they just got fucking weird demon ears and stuff. And 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 you know it, it, I I don't know. So I love the blend of kind of high and low in his films that the other movies 
seem to like not know what they want to do and they feel more corporate in a way where they're just sort of like, I don't know, like, you know, that that type of sci-fi shit you kids like. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's pulling from anything. It just feels like a more generic AI version of what those adventures should see, should, you know, be or look like. And I, I just like the specific nature of what he's doing in this. And as like a, a sci-fi fan, it's like, he really thinks like it, each planet isn't just like, Hey, like some of the star Wars stuff where it's like, Hey, it, it's a fucking, it's a planet that just has a desert. It's a planet that just has snow. It's a planet that's just a beach. It's like, no, no, no. This is a God's head that's floating in space. And uh, you know, this is like a, a planet made out of meat and pus. Like, I don't know that. And, and it's got different shapes and everything. It's it just, it's just a, a higher level of sci-fi imagination on display in these movies than I think a lot of modern blockbusters well in that sense thing i think liam you can understand why i wouldn't um warm to dr strange in the multiverse of madness because the multiverse wasn't that mad no like, and I, I agree with you they I, for, they're obsessed with singapore in these movies they go in the second act they're like wouldn't it be weird if we went to singapore and you're like what that's that's an actual place that exists there's trees on buildings in singapore and and they have neat food there like pizzas and cubes i agree that was uh, that wasn't great. Uh, and, and that whole midsection, it just felt like they were rushed to the production design of like what that alt earth just looked like a government building. It, there was not not a lot of imagination in that part. But the third act made up for it for me, the, where they really let Raimi be Raimi. So that's why I liked that one. Mike's gonna be so mad. We're so, like, it has, this has to end. I'm so sorry. But I have one other thing that um, this movie made me think. Um, we're talking about like the, the limits of most people, like the Marvel Cinematic Studios um, imaginations, like begins and ends at Singapore. Uh, this movie made me realize that like in a lot of sci-fi movies, like aliens usually acknowledge that Earth has the best culture. Like you can't find any arts, entertainment or culture better than anything on Earth, even though like they frequently have um, better technology, a keener understanding of mathematics, just, you know, science fiction, future stuff. But even in this one, like the high evolutionary who's been everywhere, um, he mentions like, yeah, Earth, guy's got a great thing going on. Like, you, like your movies are, are awesome. So like I made this place, look, this is counter Earth. This is where I'm going to build um, Utopia. Just an interesting thing. Like if you think about it, there aren't many sci-fi movies out there that even pretend that they can imagine a world in which there's a place more culturally significant than earth. I think what this all comes down to, you know, it's funny that we ended up relitigating love and thunder and uh, <laughs> multiverse of madness, but it does speak to, you know, what has historically been a strength of the MCU as Kirsty pointed out is the fact that, yeah, like there is kind of something for everything, everyone. Right. But the more, interconnected these have become because you know in the lead up in the lead up to end infinity war i don't care what anybody says you do not have to have seen 13 movies to understand the stakes of infinity war and endgame you don't right but too much of this other stuff now it does it is starting to feel like oh well you haven't done this that like i'm concerned about the marvels because as much i, I thought captain marvel was a fine movie I thought Ms. Marvel was a wonderful TV series, but the fact that that movie, you know, Captain Marvel was a long time ago. Not a lot of people watched Ms. Marvel. 
And the third Marvel in that movie was a supporting character in WandaVision, which is now going to be three years old by the time this movie comes out. Again, we're getting back to like homework here. And if and if Marvel wants to kind of go back to that strength of like, you know what? I don't particularly like this corner of the universe. I can ignore it and still enjoy everything else that's coming. They need that's something they need to figure out and they need to figure it out fast because the civilians are starting to feel like they're overwhelmed that they have to do homework to I'm constantly asked by my friends who otherwise would know better. Like, you know, people who like play Dungeons and Dragons are asking me, do I need to have seen the holiday special in order to see Guardians of the Galaxy three? Once once people have to ask that question, you, you're starting to lose. And, um, you know, if somebody was turned off by Love and Thunder, is that going to keep them away from a completely different franchise like Guardians of the Galaxy? No, and we really can't blame Love and Thunder for everything that's wrong with the world. No, no, I, 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 well, I promise to, I, wasn't, to stop. I wasn't. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't like I was just using that as an example. So I, I could just as easily have said Multiverse of Madness there. Quantum Mania. Quantum Mania is. is Quantum Mania. Yes. Quantum Mania you know is, is probably. You know what? Quantum Mania is probably the better comparison there, right? Because Quantum Mania was like very high profile. You know, had a very steep drop off from a box office standpoint because, you know, had a massive opening because the Marvel diehards all went out and saw it opening weekend, and then word of mouth and everything else kept people away the second weekend and beyond. Um, so, and and you talked about know. a great villain. I, I I just didn't really think Kang like rose above the movie. I, I don't think it's like I, I don't think there's I, as someone who read comics for like a year or two before I discovered girls. And I don't remember any of this stuff as I just like to watch the movies and I like to watch them with my kids. So I I'm caught up on every show, every piece of filmed Marvel media I have seen. And I, so I've seen Loki. I got all that. I just don't think Kang's just not Thanos. I don't know you, that that's not going to work. So, you know, despite whatever other problems are going on with the, the actor, it just still doesn't feel like they have this this figured out for a, an overarching threat to set up the next Avengers. I agree. I don't think Quantumania is a good movie, to be clear. I, I don't. I think it isn't. It is a bad movie. However, I enjoyed myself. <laughs> that, well, hey, that I think Mike and I you. did too. Like we we can't we, yeah. we haven't burned the footage from that episode. Like Mike and I are both pretty hyped. Um, <laughs> And I still think it was a perfectly fine movie. But it, it's it's massively flawed and has a lot of problems in it. It's it's not it's not great by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Yeah, I still yeah. think it was just my expectations were so low going in. I was just like, oh, all right. I like and and I'm not usually like that with the MCU. And I I, I can't really defend it. Um, and especially <laughs> I, I did think the visuals were dreadful. Um, yes, the but, visuals are dreadful. I still laughed at the Modoc stuff, like because I don't care. Like I, I thought some of the stuff was funny. There were some good jokes that landed, but it was just like it, it didn't feel like it was directed. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> that might be a problem. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I can't, I can't muster an art. I can't really muster <laughs> no. a defense here, There's no especially defense. not with an actual filmmaker. <laughs> um, Anything else before we call it a day? Because I know we ran a little long and I apologize, Liam. I know you're very busy. Mike, no? I've got so many notes here that I didn't use <laughs> because we didn't talk about any of this stuff, but it's fine. I'm sure we'll talk about it later at some point. We don't have to well, do it. Hit, hit us with one. Hit us with one. What's your, what, what's your biggest thing that you wanted to talk about? 
um adam warlock we didn't talk about and maybe that speaks volumes i don't know but he's supposed what to about be the creation of adam that that like yeah. insanely on the nose shot near the end the the sistine chapel ceiling moment <laughs> as somebody who has read more comic books than he cares to admit if you think that shot was on the nose, wait till I tell you about Adam Warlock in the comics, which is <laughs> like, you know, basically Jim Starlin's acid trip, self-insert, like, you know, everybody at some point in their lives takes psychedelics and, you know, either becomes one with the universe or thinks they're the Messiah. And like, and, and Jim Starlin kind of just put that all on the page with his Adam Warlock stories in the seventies and eighties. So I think I think that was actually pretty pretty savvy of Gunn in a way. I will say, and I I don't level this criticism against this stuff. I really don't. This this character bears no similarity to the version of the character that I know from the comics. Might be a good thing. I thought Will Poulter did a fine job. You know, is this a character I need to see more of? I don't know that I care. Weirdly, reminded me of Superman in Justice League. You know, when he comes back from the dead and he's like kind of mindless and he's just sort of doing violence on everybody. It, it really gave me flashbacks to that that whole sequence. I could see that. And he just kind of feels like a, a little stock gun, like imbecile character yeah. so that you get it's like another flavor of Drax. Um, so I, I could see those, you know, complaints, but. Uh, I again not really having any expectations for it. it I thought it, it was all kind of fine and there were some cool uses of his power um but and and hey he he put on he put on the weight he got that guy that guy was the skinny nerd from where the Millers <laughs> is this a character we're gonna see again you know or like as we've said before on here are we ever gonna see Harry Styles as Star Fox again you yes. know are we are are we? You know, I confused, are we, are we I confused the two of them, to be honest. I thought I, I, that was another one that I was like, is that the Harry? St oh, no, it's the other guy. It's the where the Miller's kid. Like, I, you know, it's so many of those post credit scenes are just nonsense and they they yeah. are never picked up, up on again. So how are you supposed to, you know, really be like, oh, no, that that's important. That means something when. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's fun to spot it if you're if you're like a mega fan like me of this stuff. But ultimately, even I'm starting to say, you know, like we had Charlize Theron show up as Clea. Finally, Clea comes to the Doctor Strange movies. I don't think we're ever going to see her again. I don't think we're ever going to see her again. I just don't think it's going to happen. Kirsty, what other notes have we missed? I'm sorry. I just, Kirsty puts so much work into the run of show for every episode. And every week I just like trample them. He just bulldoze straight over it every week. I think we talked a little bit about Star-Lord in the future and when he might come back. And it's probably going to be in these group team-up movies and not for a standalone movie. So, But yeah, Chris Pratt getting paid, re-upping his contract, the most predictable outcome. But they need him. I think they need him. If they, you know, yes, they do. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, obviously they need Tom Holland and they need him. And and then at least you've got, uh, you know, uh, an interesting pairing to 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 build everybody else around, I think, um, just because they haven't really launched a new star. I don't know who was the last one that was like, oh, that's now a movie star. I think Florence Pugh could be it. 
but she hasn't really had the uh, a solo movie or a solo outing yet. It should be CW, but for some reason they just refuse to ever put him in another Marvel movie for like the rest of history. Who did you say? Sorry, I missed that. Simu. Oh, Simu Liu. Yeah. That's another popular topic on Stainum. Like we've mentioned it a few times now because it gets stranger with every passing movie. Because like at this point, because he was essentially, you know, the Tony Stark of this next saga or what have you. Um, and we would have seen Tony Stark like 14 times by now. Yeah, but on the other hand, and I, and I say this as somebody who loved Shang-Chi. I think it's a great movie. But you know what? How about instead of trying to tie this character to like 15 other things, how about we just have a whole thread in the MCU that's just like badass action movies that can be made for less than a nine figure budget? You know, like, wouldn't that be a little, wouldn't that be a little cooler? Like, how about, how about we get, you know, how about we get the director of the raid in to, to make Shang-Chi 2 instead? And, and, and I don't know, like. How about we get the director of Skyline 2? Yeah, I'm Tech Avail. When you just said that, though, it made me realize, oh, they're probably going to have him show up in Blade. I think you just, I think you just kind of. Yeah. That that made sense. Blade's going to come out in 40 years. I hope so. I, I, I get pre-grumpy for these movies now because everyone's going to have to shit on the old Blade, which I, I love Blade 1 and Blade 2 with all my heart. And I don't I don't yes. like seeing young kids telling me it's not good, actually. That makes me very grumpy. No. Blade <laughs> 2 is a masterpiece. Blade 2 is so good. If you could direct a Marvel movie, Liam, if you had your pick of Marvel properties, things that have not been brought to the screen or whatever, Take your pick. Is there one that you would want to do? Yeah, it's a really dorky one called Dark Hawk. It's like the most 90s, yes. the most 90s of of comic runs. But I loved it. And it, it would, it, you know, something about the, uh, you know, the, that that power of the amulet. And he just kind of turns into this badass, uh, you know, got the claw on the arm and the wings. It's like his his power set is exactly the power set I want. So uh, I I love Darkhawk. I remember trading the Todd McFarlane sideways issue for like a, a random episode, a random issue of Darkhawk where he fought Tombstone just because I wanted to complete my collection. And everyone's like, you fucking idiot. You just traded like a $30 comic for a $2 one. But I was like, I don't care. I love Darkhawk. So that would be my a great design. I'm with you. I am going to start campaigning for the Liam O'Donnell Darkhawk movie. I answered that question on a Reddit once and everyone was like, what? What are you, a nerd? Like, it's like, like Darkhawk yes. is like the new metal of Marvel Comics or something, which is, again, <laughs> probably why I like it. I think Darkhawk would work great as I, I, I'm watching Alex's eyes glaze over, like, <laughs> as we speak, by the way. Darkhawk would work great as a Disney Plus series as well, like, like, as like a, you know, tokusatsu, uh, you know. <laughs> That's exactly what I, that, what I'd love to do with it, yeah. Liam, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, you can find me at Liam Odin on Twitter and Instagram. And every week at uh, Action for Everyone, we are, uh, where all podcasts are downloaded with my co-hosts, uh, Vice Victus and Mike Scott, uh, both uh, great writers and collaborators on Twitter as well. Uh, we talk usually about whatever the big action movie is of the week and trailers. And we'll occasionally have um, guests. We try to focus on, you know, action filmmakers, stuntmen, uh, fight choreographers and stars. And so, yeah, we're just trying to kind of 
foster the action Twitter community um, and and try to try to build that up to rival the geek community and the horror community. It's like where where are the guys that uh, you know we we try to comb through all of the DTV action and international action and, and talk about the the things that we love. You know what, folks? I think that is it for another episode of Marvel's Phantom. Don't forget, follow Denny Geek US on YouTube. And uh, if you are listening after the fact, you can tune in live every Wednesday. We are switching to Wednesdays as of next week for the foreseeable future over at twitch.tv slash TV. Catch all of our upcoming episodes. Join us next week. That's on Wednesday. We will be taking a look at some of the big Marvel movie crossovers that we almost had, but that ultimately got lost in development hell. We are at Marvel Stanham on Twitter and Instagram. Drop us a line. Let us know your burning questions. Tell us. Don't ask us. Tell us what you want us to cover in upcoming episodes. Don't forget, we also have a DC show. Check out DC Standom where you can on all major podcast platforms. And our amazing paranormal and horror show, Talking Strange, hosted by the brilliant Aaron Sagers. If you came in late, you'll be able to watch this entire episode on our web home, denigeek.com, or again at our YouTube, Denigeek US. Don't forget, you can check out past episodes there and also wherever you get your podcasts. Head straight to denigeek.com slash Marvel for all of our amazing Marvel coverage. Thank you once again to our special guest, Liam O'Donnell. Thanks to Andrew Halley, the best producer in the multiverse, even though you almost made me cry with some of those images at the start of the show. And a special shout out to Michael R. He makes the podcast version of this show everything it possibly can be. Lee Parham kept you all behaving in the comments, runs our TikTok, does all kinds of great stuff. Check out our TikTok. We are Denny Geek TV over there. This has been Marvel Standom on the Denny Geek Network. Until next time, remember, folks, we stand together. <laughs>